The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Thank you so much for that very kind introduction, Rob. And uh, I'm coming to you here from uh, uh, Harris Park, which is on the land of the Baramadigal people of the Darug Nation in eastern Sydney. And so, as is the custom in Australia, we pay respects to the elders past, present and emerging, and we acknowledge their uh, unceded custodianship of the land upon which I sit. Uh, and just for, for a bit of background, for those of you who are not aware that Australia is one of the uh, few colonised countries where there is no uh, treaty or arrangement with uh, Indigenous people uh, whatsoever, and they're not acknowledged in our constitution. We are trying to change that, and there is a movement this year uh, called the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which is intended to provide acknowledgement for Aboriginal people Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within our constitution and to give them an advisory voice in our federal government. Uh, and so if you're interested to do to look at that, just Google the Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, and I've been one of the Buddhist representatives who've been supporting that movement. Wonderful to be here and just glancing uh, and some of our old uh, friends, Older than ever, in fact. Ayatata uh, Loka, Venerables from the uh, Aranya Bodhi, uh, Susan Pembroke, how are you going, Susan? Uh, Wei Yin, and a number of others who've uh, crossed paths with in this strange journey uh, along the Dhamma Highway. Oh, and some closer to home as well. Ayasavira, uh, good to see you here. And uh, okay. Is there anyone here who does not have any familiarity with the suttas? And, and if this is your in initiation into the suttas, if you were, if you are, as it were, sutta virgins, then please uh, uh, put, uh, notify or put your hand up on Zoom or something like that, just so I can double check, because I don't want to leave anyone behind. Okay, so I'm just checking. We can leave a comment in the chat. Okay, it looks like most people have some kind of background. Good. So for the next um, four weeks, we're going to be discussing the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. And the Mahaparinibbana Sutta is, um, uh, of course, the narrative of the uh, end of the Buddha's life, his final journey towards his, uh, his uh, Parinibbana. We are right now in the month of May, which is the month of Vesak, which is... Uh, celebrated by the Buddhist community as the birth, uh, awakening and death of the Buddha. I, I, I come here as a historical scholar to harsh your buzz and to let you know that unfortunately the Buddha wasn't, didn't actually die in May and the evidence of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta suggests rather that he died probably in December or January. So uh, sorry about that. Uh, but in any case, uh, as we know, we celebrate it as a symbolic uh, day. Um, I'm going to be reading from my translation of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, which is available on sort of central. Uh, let me just pop the uh, link into the chat if anyone doesn't have it. Uh, and um, the... Uh, that, that, that link I just sent you has the uh, notes available, so uh, these will give you some uh, annotations, which I've recently started doing as a project for the suttas to sort of uh, explain my translations. 
and hopefully give some clarity and some historical background to what's going on with the suttas. Uh, I'll also be reading from this. Nice, isn't it? So this is a book. And sort of central has, you remember these things, don't you? It's like from the, before there were like fax machines and so on, all the gray hairs here will remember what a book was. So this is paper. And on paper, we use ink and we print words just like on a screen. It's amazing. And uh, so sort of central has recently uh, started publishing uh, translations as books. We'll be rolling this feature out gradually over time. Uh, and so you can order these from uh, sort of central website. Uh, and uh, they, they're nice. And I always think, and I think, I think many studies support that, that for if you want to read meaningfully and you want to read in depth, then paper is always the best uh, medium. And uh, screens are great for looking something up or doing a bit of research or something. But if you want to really sit with a sutta contemplatively, then nothing beats paper. So... Uh, so that's that. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's begin. So I'm going to start by beginning a short reading a short passage from the Sutta, uh, and then we can uh, discuss that and um, see how far we go. So I have heard at one time the Buddha was staying near Rajagaha on the Vultures Peak Mountain. Now, at that time, King Ajatasattu, where Dehiputta of Magadha, wanted to invade the Vajis. He declared, I shall wipe out these Vajis so mighty and powerful. I shall destroy them and lay ruin and devastation upon them. And then King Ajatasattu addressed Vasakara, the Brahman minister of Magadha. Please, Brahman, go to the Buddha and in my name bow with your head to his feet. Ask him if he is healthy and well, nimble, strong and living comfortably. And then say, sir... King Ajatasattu Vedehiputta of Magadha wants to invade the Vajis. He says, I shall wipe out these Vajis, so mighty and powerful. I shall destroy them and lay ruin and devastation upon them. Remember well how the Buddha answers and tell it to me, for the realized ones say nothing that is not so. All right, so this is the introduction to the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Now, quite dramatic all right, it's a pretty dramatic opening. Now, compared to most sutta openings, you know, at one time the Buddha was staying in Savati and then he spoke to the monks. Pretty, pretty uh, uh, mundane stuff. Here we begin with this highly charged uh, opening and a lot of uh, assumed knowledge and assumed historical knowledge and context uh, behind that opening. So this already lets us know a number of the features of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. One feature is that it was composed uh, by a very um, careful and intelligent literary mind. Right? This is how, this is how you this is how you engage someone in a in a narrative. You begin with something dramatic, something something that uh, creates a tension that requires a resolution. Now, of course, there's a tension here in, in, in the historical sense. What did Ajatasattu do? Did he, in fact, invade the Vajis? But there's also a narrative tension, and in, in it raises the question, how is Buddha going to respond to this kind of thing? 
So immediately we're propelled into a narrative in a way that is very unusual in Buddhist, early Buddhist literature. Most suttas don't propel you into a narrative like that at all. Some do, but it's fairly rare. Uh, and so this immediately uh, um, uh, prompts the question, what's going on? Why is it formed like this? Who is behind it? And what significance does this have for the wider themes of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta? Now, <clears throat> Mahaparinibbana Sutta is obviously very long. It's about as long as a short novel, and I won't uh, even attempt to read or discuss all of the teachings in there. But what I will try to do in this short series of talks is to introduce a few um, perspectives, highlight a few passages, and try to give some kind of richness to a background and a context to help to understand what's going on uh, a bit, uh, with a bit more depth and a bit more um, colour. Now, we can look at Mahabharani Sutta from a number of perspectives. We can look at it purely as a piece of history, as a journalistic account, a diary, if you will, of the Buddha's last days. He went to this place, did this, then went to that place and did that, and so on, leading up to the time of his death. We can also see it as a compilation of Dhamma teachings, because within that, uh, at different places, the Buddha was giving different kinds of teachings. And so it, tell, it first of all gives us a summary of those teachings, but it also suggests what were the things that were most important for the Buddha to convey in his final days. And so this is giving us some uh, doctrinal content to the teaching. Now, in addition to that, we also can look at this from a literary perspective. Uh, and as I already suggested, the sutta has quite a sophisticated literary uh, hand behind it. There is somebody who's guiding, uh, for example, the, the sequence of events, what we call the gati of events, what comes after another and what is it that propels the narrative, uh, which then leads us to the next perspective which we have, which is a very interesting and I think possibly unique uh, really perspective within the early suttas, which is the, the subtext, the authorial subtext. Within this entire uh, narrative, the Buddha is accompanied by Venerable Ananda. And we know from Buddhist tradition that Venerable Ananda was the leading monk who uh, helped to assemble the scriptures after the Buddha died, put them together, organise them and set the Sangha up to continue the legacy of the Buddha. But at the same time, Ananda is a character in the narrative. I think the authorial hand here, the, the person who decided, for example, let's begin the narrative of the end of the Buddha's life with this incredibly dramatic uh, statement by King Ajatasattu, the person who made those kinds of decisions and put it together in this kind of way, I believe, was Venerable Ananda. And I think that in the days after the passing of his great master, he devoted himself to creating this uh, narrative as a way of ensuring the legacy and long-lasting of his master. That is, of course, not to say that every detail in the sutta was 
you know, exactly historical. It's not to say that every detail was uh, composed by Ananda personally. There are significant differences between the different versions and the, the uh, multiple, you know, versions and intertextuality of Mahaparinibhala Sutta is actually incredibly complex. I won't delve into it very much. So clearly it was under development for a period of time, but I think the primary, primary text was uh, put together by Venerable Ananda. And so that means that when we see him, he's telling his own story together with his own vulnerabilities and own fears, which are encoded in the narrative in ways either uh, quite subtly or quite, uh, in some cases, quite openly. All right, so, so these are some perspectives that we can bring to the text. Another perspective that we can bring to the text is the uh, vast uh, intertextuality of this particular narrative. There is a, a whole cycle of suttas, which I call the Mahaparinibbana cycle, uh, that um, uh, draws on this sutta, that tells related events, sometimes is extracted from this sutta and expanded, and which relates to this particular text in all kinds of ways. And one of the things that that means is that there's actually like a huge chunk of Buddhist literature, early Buddhist literature, that stems from these last days of the Buddha's life, not just the Mahaparinibbana, but many other suttas often themselves quite complex and significant. Again, I won't, I won't delve too much into this, but just to sort of remark in passing that uh, we are dealing with this complex uh, intertextual uh, situation. All right, so to come back to the opening passage, uh, Sattu of Magadha wants to uh, attack the Vajis. What's going on here? Well, uh, let me introduce you the characters that we've heard about so far. So we've heard of uh, King Ajatasattu, son of Bimbisara, uh, one of the great kings of that era. He had been previously uh, corrupted by Devadatta, uh, seduced into killing his own father, and the narrative of his uh, confession of that crime is told in the second sutta of the Diganikaya, the Samanyapala Sutta. Here must be some time after the Samanyapala Sutta, not that long after, a few years maybe. And it seems that even though he had repented from the cri his crime of uh, patricide, um, well, <laughs> he was still a bit of a character and his conversion to Buddhism was perhaps not as complete as we might have uh, liked it to be. So he wants to invade the Vajians. Why does he want to invade the Vajians? Well, the Sutta doesn't tell us. The commentary tells us that it originated from a trade dispute about controlling the, um, uh, the trade on the Ganges River. So Magadha, Ajatasattu's empire, uh, bounded the Ganges on the north, while the Vajis bounded the Ganges, uh, the Ganges bounded them on the south side so that they uh, shared some ports and some transit points and it seems that it was a dispute over one of those that led to Ajatasattu wanting to invade the Vajis. Regardless of the details of that specific thing, the general idea is surely true that uh, Ajatasattu and the Magadhan Empire wanted to control 
the Ganges and to control the trade routes along the Ganges. I don't know if any of you uh, saw in the news recently, the last few days, a few people have been reporting uh, finding a Buddha image in Egypt. Did anybody see that come up in the news? Few people know. Uh, anyway, so they found a Buddha image in Egypt dated from about maybe third century or so. And uh, what we're seeing in Mahaparinibbana Sutta is the beginnings of the expansionism that about 100 years later resulted in the great Mauryan Empire of Chandragupta, who met with and formed an alliance with ultimately uh, Alexander and then opened up the trade routes through to Rome and through to the West. So there's a, there's a connection between the events we're seeing here in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta and that Buddha image, <laughs> which was found in Egypt, all those, uh, stemming from all those hundreds of years later. Why was Ajatasattu, um, oh, thanks for sharing the link, uh, Anne. Why was Ajatasattu um, asking for the Buddha's advice? Interesting question. The text doesn't really tell us, except it says that the realized ones, the Tathagatas, don't say anything that isn't so. Hmm. Remember that in the Ajatasattu's previous encounter with the Buddha, he confessed his crime of murdering his father. Now, this is a very kind of touchy moment. Right? I mean, when a king confesses something to you, especially when confesses a violent crime like that, I mean, it's, it's dodgy, right? What do you exactly say? It's not exactly um, uh, you have to be very careful about the words that you choose. And when that happened, uh, the Buddha was very straightforward with the Jatasattu. He agreed with him. Yes, you did this. It was a great crime. And he didn't try to sort of uh, negate it. He didn't try to say, oh, yes, 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 well, you were the great king. Or he didn't try to butter him up or anything like that. He was very straightforward. And he acknowledged, yes, this is the crime that you did. And now let us try to move on. And I believe that it is a Jadasattva's experience at that time that showed him that the Buddha was somebody that he could rely on to give him honest feedback. Now, that's what he says. Targeters don't say anything that is not true. We know that it is one of the great traps for a king or a dictator or an autocrat or really any leader when they stop listening to people and when they think when they're... Um, advisors or the people around them uh, are too scared to give them honest advice. And I think that Ajatasattu, for all his flaws, uh, was aware of this and was aware that uh, perhaps his own uh, advisors would not be giving him honest advice, and so he wanted to seek some feedback from the Buddha. That's my reading on that anyway. Now, this is the story that initiates the journey towards the end of the Buddha's life. But there is something more to it as well, because in a wider sense, it's not just the end of the Buddha, it's the end of the world that the Buddha had known. And in this period of time, 
we see around, you know, say a decade before or after this, we see conflict erupting between the Vajians and the Magadans, as we see here. A little bit earlier, there'd been a war between the Kosalans and the Magadans. There's a war between the Kosalans and the Sakyans. There's another war between the Sakyans and the Kolians. There's a war between the Malians and the Kosalans. It's probably quicker to list the people who weren't fighting each other than it is to list all the people who were fighting each other. So during the, most of the Buddha's lifetime, there was a, a fair, it was fairly peaceful during that, during that um, fairly stable during that, in that uh, region of northern India. And clearly that peace was breaking down and there were economic and social factors which were uh, underlying this. And so that, that, all, 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 that entire world that we see depicted in the suttas, and if you read the suttas, you see, oh, the Buddha was in Kosala, he was at Savati, and he travelled to here, and all of, those, all of those different nations and different peoples were gone. And when we, when we uh, go through the Mahaparinibbana Sutta and we see of the Vajian Republic, we see the Malian Republic, we see the different people and all of those things, all of those different republics were gone within a few decades of the Buddha's passing away. Everything was changed and the entirety of the northern India became dominated by a single empire. What that means for the Buddhists of that time is that they were faced with this great gaping abyss of uncertainty, not just the uncertainty of the Buddha's passing away, but the uncertainty of what is life going to be like is this the ending of the world? I mean, when you see the dissolution of a particular social order, it is not at all assured that there's going to be another social order that comes afterwards. Sometimes the social order disappears and nothing comes. Everything falls apart into chaos, madness. That can happen. And we know from our perspective that the Buddhist community not only survived but thrived and received the patronage of King Ashoka and others. But they didn't. And so this undercurrent of fear about what's going to happen to them, what's going to happen to the Buddhist community, what's going to happen to the Dhamma, this informs the entire uh, through line of the narrative of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. All right, very good. Oh, I should mention, by the way, um, that if anyone has some questions, we'll have time for some questions a bit later. But meanwhile, if you do want to pop questions into the chat, uh, I have the chat open here. So if you have questions as we go along, uh, please do pop them into there. All right. All right. Continue. Yes, Sir Vasakara replied, he had the finest carriages harnessed. Then he mounted a fine carriage and along with other fine carriages set out from Rajagaha for the Vulture's Peak Mountain. He went by carriage as far as the terrain allowed, then descended and approached the Buddha on foot and exchanged greetings with him. When the greetings and polite conversation were over, he sat down to one side and said to the Buddha, Master Gotama, King Ajatasattu Vedehikutta of Magadha bows with his head to your feet. He asks if you are healthy and nimble, strong and living comfortably. Master Gotama, King Ajatasattu wants to invade the Vajis. He has declared, I shall wipe out these Vajis 
and uh, so mighty and powerful, I shall destroy them and lay ruin and devastation upon them. Um, just a, a quick note here on the form of address. When Vasakara uh, refers to, uh, addresses the Buddha, he refers to him as uh, uh, ascetic, as uh, Master Gotama, Baho Gotama, which is a respectful but not reverential term of address. Uh, and I think that Wasakara was uh, kind of a follower of the Buddha at the time, but not necessarily a really committed follower uh, just yet. Uh, also, just to mention, there's been some question and some discussion uh, about the word Gotama, which is a bit of an unusual uh, uh, term of address because it's a the Buddha was a Kshatriya, an aristocrat, and Gotama is the name of a Brahmanical lineage. And there's been a degree of uh, speculation and discussion about why the Buddha is referred to with a Brahmanical clan name. Uh, and it seems that the reason why that is so uh, is because it was the custom that when a ruler from an aristocratic clan was anointed, that they took the name of their Brahmanical family chaplain, the Parohita. Uh, and during the ceremony of anointing, the, uh, their status as a Katya was suspended and they temporarily became a Brahman in the lineage of their Purohita. And then afterwards they would continue to be referred to by that name. So the Sakyans had a family priest, or the lineage of the family priest was in the Gotama clan. And we'll see later on that some of the other Katya clans were likewise referred to by Brahmanical uh, names like uh, Agivesana or Vaseta. So that's just a little by-the-by, bit of historical context there. Right, moving along. Now at that time, Venerable Ananda was standing behind the Buddha, fanning him. Then the Buddha said to him, Ananda, have you heard that the Vajis meet frequently and have many meetings? All right, so uh, I'm sure most of you are familiar with Venerable Ananda. Uh, he was the uh, younger cousin of the Buddha. And, um, uh, yes, uh, IIT puts in there that the Buddha is likewise referred to as Angirasa, another uh, Brahmanical name. And Angirasa, uh, as well as Okaka, refer to the, the, the king, the royal lineage uh, and the solar lineage. Uh, uh, Angirasa is a... Um, uh, yeah, is a uh, um, uh, is a kind of a solar name. It evokes the the radiance of the sun. Um, but it's interesting. But one of the reasons that's interesting is because the time of the Buddha was also the time of the Brahmanization of that part of India. So most of northern India had been Brahmanized, and we can see in this sutta that Ajatasattu has a Brahman minister who's advising him. Uh, it seems that the Sakyans also had that uh, Brahmanical ministers who were advising them, but the process of Brahmanization was still ongoing, uh, especially towards the south. Um, yeah, that's correct. The uh, Girasa was one of the seven uh, rishis, yeah. Um, if, you, if you're interested, uh, IIT or others, uh, have a look at the notes that I did on DN14, where I go into uh, some of those um, backgrounds. Uh, to some detail. Anyway, moving on. Right, so Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, younger cousin, probably about 20 or 30 years younger than him. And uh, he went forth uh, some years after the Buddha had already gone forth. 
Uh, and then from the time that he went forth, he rapidly became the Buddha's primary uh, attendant and carer, as we see uh, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Uh, others also, as we see in Mahaparinibbana Buddha, did play that role as well. Ananda wasn't exclusively, uh, but uh, Ananda was certainly the closest one to the Buddha. Melanie, I love your friend. Wow. <laughs> Very good doggo. Okay, excellent. <laughs> Moving along. Um, uh, so Ananda was Ananda um, Ananda was a complex character because he had this kind of uh, gentleness and devotion to the Buddha. So he exemplified this kind of more kind of vulnerable um, uh, emotional uh, character, who nonetheless had a um, highly uh, acute intellect, uh, and so he um, he was often the one who would like like be be bringing people together, or had that kind of voice or that way of communicating that was reconciling and bringing communities together. Again, as we see in the sutta itself. Anyway, so Ananda says, have you heard that the Vajis meet frequently and have many meetings? I have heard that, sir. As long as the Vajis meet frequently and have many meetings, they can expect growth, not decline. Have you heard that the Vajis meet in harmony, leave in harmony, and carry on their business in harmony? I have heard that, sir. As long as they do so, they can expect growth and not decline. Have you heard that the Vajis don't make new decrees or abolish existing decrees but proceed having undertaken the traditional Vajian principles as they have been decreed? I have heard that, sir, as long as they don't make new decrees or abolish existing decrees but proceed having, having undertaken the traditional Vajian principles, they can expect growth. Have you heard that the Vajis honour, respect, esteem and venerate Vajian elders and think them worth listening to? I have heard that, sir. As long as they honour, respect, esteem and venerate Vajin elders and think them worth listening to, they can expect growth not to climb. Ananda, have you heard that the Vajis don't rape or abduct women or girls from their families and force them to live with them? I have heard that, sir. As long as they don't rape or abduct women or girls from their families and force them to live with them, they can expect growth not to climb. Have you heard that the Vajians honour, respect, esteem and venerate the Vajian shrines, whether in or, or outer, not neglecting the proper spirit offerings that were given and made in the past? I have heard that. As long as they do so, they can expect growth and not decline. Have you heard that the Vajis organise proper protection, shelter and security for perfected ones so that more perfected ones might come to the realm and those already here may live in comfort? I have heard that. As long as they organise proper shelter, protection and security, then they can expect growth, not decline. Then the Buddha has said to Vasakara, Brahman, this one time I was staying near Vesali at the Sarandada Woodland Shrine. There I taught the Vajis these seven principles that prevent decline. As long as these seven principles that prevent decline last among the Vajis, and as long as the Vajis are seen following them, they can expect growth, not decline. When the Buddha had spoken, Vasakara said to him, Master Gotama, if the Vajis follow even a single one of these principles, they can expect growth and not decline. How much more so are all seven? Actually, I'm just going to check the online translation because I think I've changed the next bit. 
Um, uh, if even a single one of these principles, they can expect growth and not decline. How much more so? All seven. King Ajatasattu cannot defeat the Vajins in war unless by bribery or by sowing dissension. Well, now, Master Gautama, I must go. I have many duties and much to do. Please, Brahman, go at your convenience. Then Rasakara, the Brahman, having approved and agreed with what the Buddha said, got up from his seat and left. All right. So these are the seven principles of non-decline. The Buddha then goes on to teach seven similar principles of non-decline for the monks, which I will go on to in just a minute. But first of all, let me just go back over those seven and briefly uh, discuss uh, what is going on here. First thing is that the Vajians were a, um, uh, what you might describe as an aristocratic republic. So they were governed by the uh, councils of the leading clans within the republic. It wasn't a, a full democracy in the sense of having universal enfranchisement, uh, but the leading clans would elect uh, a raja, a ruler, or, for, or a council of rulers for a period of time. Uh, so it was a kind of a semi-democratic system. Uh, and so this is what it refers to when it talks about meeting frequently. And in fact, we'll encounter some examples of that as we go along. Now, these, these meetings that, that the Buddha is referring to here were basically town hall meetings. And I know that there's still a, a strong culture of that in the US as there is in, in Australia. Uh, that part of the life of a democracy is that people should get together and talk about things. And if we're going to be making decisions as a community, then we need a level of commitment and involvement from the people who are part of that community who are going to uh, sacrifice some of their time <laughs> to go and have boring meetings where... Uh, Look, nobody really likes going and having meetings, but it is a part of what makes uh, a country or a spiritual community possible. And I think that's, that's really important for, for uh, all of us to bear in mind, whether it's in terms of uh, our local you know, neighbourhood or if it's in terms of our, our spiritual community and our you know, local temples, local Buddhist centres, retreat centres, meditation centres, to show up and to be a voice and to help to support that process. Uh, and it doesn't have to, be, you know, it doesn't have to be that you, you, you only show up when you want something, right? It can be just you show up because you want to support the process and you think it's, a, it's a be better that we live in a place where this happens than to live in a place where it doesn't happen. Um, and, of course, in terms of government, uh, like local state government and so on as well, to be able to participate in this process. We have a number uh, of kind of accounts of uh, what happens in those meetings, uh, and they would discuss various kinds of business and so on and so forth. And so this was very much a, a major feature of the uh, life, especially of the aristocratic republics in those days. But an important part of the meeting is not just that the meetings uh, happen, but also that the meetings 
uh, were carried out in harmony. And I'm sure, as we're all aware, that that is always the case. And sometimes you go to these meetings and everyone just yells at each other. And everyone's like, you, you've got that you come here with your and your, all of your anger and all of your hate and you have to like blurt it out of people. And so this is not really productive. And when this happens so often, then it makes us feel disenfranchised, it makes us feel disenchanted with even the thought of taking part in a meeting like that. And so if we want good people to come to these kinds of meetings and to actually play a role in their civic society, it's critical that those that civic society be carried out in a manner that is civil and kind and polite and which honours and respects the voices of the people who have come to attend. This thing is also very important. So this is why I say that, you know, it, it's, it's not even so important that, you know, you're advocating for a certain position to come to a meeting. You know, it's, it's even more valuable in some cases to come along and not know what your position is, but just to be able to listen and to just be a, a quiet presence there. Um, okay, so the next one is an interesting one. Uh, it says that the Vajis shouldn't make new decrees or abolish existing decrees. Now, the word for decree here, the Pali word is panyata, what has been laid down. Um, and how we interpret this, um, it's not, not at all obvious. I mean, does it mean that the Vajians can't make new laws, right? Seems a bit weird, right? I mean, why do you meet if you can't legislate? I mean, they're a government, they should be able to make new laws. Like, what, what the, does it actually mean by these, uh, by these decrees? What I think it means is that the decrees are something a bit like uh, a constitution. Elsewhere in the suttas, it talks about the, the ancient uh, uh, principles or the ancient rules that the Brahmins would have uh, with the idea that there were a set of principles and ideals upon which uh, that life should be led. Now, the Vajian Republic uh, had been uh, founded some centuries uh, earlier, not, not a huge amount of time, maybe one or two centuries before the time of the Buddha, uh, as uh, a union of smaller republics of different clans in the area. And so you had to, like, unite these different families and these different clans with these different ideals, different values, different traditions, and to be able to somehow get everybody to work together on a common process for a common outcome. And it was pretty successful in doing that. It became highly economically prosperous and lasted for quite a few hundred years. So it was very successful at doing that. And what I think that these Vajin principles it's referring to is, is the, the underlying principles upon which the Republic was formed, namely such principles as getting together and having meetings and the various other principles that's referred to in these, um, in these uh, lists. So it doesn't mean that the Vajians couldn't make new laws or couldn't respond to new kinds of situations, but it did mean that they didn't arbitrarily uh, abandon 
those principles which informed the creation of their republic. And so I think that's, that's something which is good and that's something which um, most nations today still respect, that we, we respect our constitutions and we don't, um, we don't sort of arbitrarily sort of throw it out and change it on a whim. Uh, in Australia, as I said, we are looking towards a fairly rare constitutional amendment uh, later in the year. Uh, in Australia, the way it works is to make a constitutional amendment, you have to have uh, a majority of people in a majority of states plus a majority of states plus a majority in both houses of parliament, something like that. It's a bit complicated. But the point is that you need to be sort of very careful before you can make this kind of change. Um, uh, okay, so that's what I think. And, and, of course, this is a um, uh, regarded as analogy with uh, what happens with the Sangha. Okay, moving on. Have you heard the Vajins honour, respect, esteem and venerate Vajin elders and think them worth listening to? Another interesting one. One, one word that is not found there is obey <laughs> or follow their orders. Yeah? It's that they should listen to them listen to what the elders say, and they should treat elders with respect. Yeah? I think this also is quite interesting, isn't it? There's a kind of a fine line here between, yes, elders should be listened to, they should be respected, but are elders all, uh, should we always have to obey elders? Should we always have to do what they tell us? Not so obvious. And that kind of fine line also we find in the monastic vineyard as well, that the senior monastics like, like myself or like IIT are regarded as people who are in a, in a meeting of the Sangha or a group of the Sangha. Uh, you know, we've been around for a while. We've seen some things, some, <laughs> some things that you people wouldn't believe happening. And so our uh, advice is regarded as something which should be listened to. But at the same time, within the Sangha itself, we don't, like, have a power of decree. We don't have a power to, you know, command the Sangha or whatever. And if the Sangha decides a decision that goes against what we want, then that's okay. That's just how it goes sometimes. All right. uh, so, again, the next one, I think I've changed my translation a little bit, but the idea is basically the same, uh, that the Vajians don't forcibly abduct the women or girls of the clans and make them live with them. So um, uh, here, obviously, is an explicit uh, injunction uh, against uh, sexual violence uh, and for the protection of women. Uh, and I think it's really remarkable that the Buddha regarded uh, the protection of, uh, for women against violence as being one of the foundational principles of the establishment of a republic and one of the foundational principles that allowed that republic to continue. And, of course, we know that today um, women are still subject to violence in many and harrowing ways and that one of the signs of what we would really consider to be a civilised government is that it provides for adequate protection and consideration for the rights of women and for the protection of women uh, against uh, domestic violence. 
And this, of course, is still uh, and or violence, domestic violence and other forms of violence as well. Uh, and this is still an ongoing situation. And we have seen many changes in our own lifetimes for good or for bad. Um, I think that we have sometimes a, a sense of conceit in our modern world that we think that, um, you know, we think that we've made progress or we're more aware of these issues and that uh, in the past people often say, you know, if there's, a, if there's a news about somebody, you know, some bloke who's, who's you know, um, uh, groped a woman or done something inappropriate, and then they're like, oh, yeah, that was the 80s. That was a different time. Oh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I was, I, was, I was a student in the 80s, and I can tell you that that was not okay then. And these kinds of excuses as if it's only in the last 10 years that we've suddenly realised that uh, women are subject to violence and need, to be, need protection and need to be listened to. Um, we can see in the Buddhist scriptures that this was very much the case uh, even two and a half thousand years ago. There is uh, a rule in the Vinaya for the monks called the Anyata rule. Uh, and the Anyata rule essentially says that if a, a trustworthy uh, laywoman makes an accusation of sexual misconduct against a monk, that the monk should be investigated and that uh, they should be uh, treated according to the accusation by the woman uh, herself. And so this is a, an explicit and very clear injunction in the original Vinaya that women should be listened to and women should be believed. And it's the only case in the, in the Vinaya where the voice of, the, uh, of somebody else can outweigh the voice of the monk himself. So again, as we know that these things are still very much uh, um, current issues, and of course there's a, a rape trial going on at the moment where the former president is being very credibly accused of rape, and these questions are still so important for us. So I think, I think one thing to, to bear in mind with the suttas excuse me, my robe's coming off, <coughs> with the suttas, is that we can't expect, um, you know, two and a half thousand year old texts to answer all our problems for us. And we can't, we can't expect them to, you know, deal with all of the issues that we're going to be facing today. Obviously, it was a different time. But we can look for principles, for precedents, and for ideas. And when we see something like this, then we, we uh, have to acknowledge that it is um, uh, very uh, significant. Okay. Um, okay, very good. Uh, so uh, IIT has commented here that in one of the old Pali text chronicles from Sri Lanka, it was said that as one of the characteristics of the early Buddhist tradition that a woman could walk alone from one end of the island to another without fear or danger. Yeah, very nice. Thanks, I, I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. Which which um, chronicle was that in? Do you know? Was that the Deepavangsa? Because they think the Deepavangsa. I have Deepa to Wangsa... check back, Yeah. Because they think the Deepa Wangsa was written by Bhikkhunis, right? It seems to be the uh, consensus. Seems like. Yeah, seems like, yeah. Okay, anyway, thank you so much for that. Um, 
All right. Uh, moving on just a little bit. Okay. Uh, you're right. So the Vajians were esteeming the Vajian shrines. Another interesting one, right? Making the proper uh, spirit offerings. It's an interesting, um, interesting addition here. Now, you know, the Buddha, of course, wasn't an animist. Right? He didn't believe that by making offerings to shrines that therefore, whatever, you're going to go to heaven or, what, you know, something like that. At the same time, though, the Buddha always endorsed uh, and practiced a positive relationship with the spirits or even with the beliefs and the customs and religious practices that were around him at the time. And he didn't have that kind of um, like ascetic reductionism that we see today in some kinds of secularist and modernist approaches where it's like, oh, that's all just rubbish. I'll just throw all that away. The, I think the Buddha cultivated a positive and healthy relationship with the different kinds of spirituality that were happening at the time, not however, an uncritical relationship. Obviously, if we're talking about animal sacrifice, human sacrifice and practices that were extreme or harmful, uh, then the Buddha rejected those things. But if it was a matter of offering a bit of rice to a tree shrine or something like that, then the Buddha didn't see any harm with that. And if you believe in the spirits and in, uh, I'm looking at the uh, the great uh, redwood trees behind Ayatatthaloka, I'm not sure if they're real ones or they're uh, or just a background, uh, but if you believe <laughs> that those trees have a power to them and that there are beings who live in those trees, then probably a good idea to be on the good side of those beings. Uh, but at, 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 on another level, what this is talking about is about maintaining um, connections with the world around us, whether it's people's beliefs, people's customs, with nature, with the trees and all of those things. In the Buddha's time, or the, in, sorry, uh, in, in some later Indian uh, treaties about uh, how uh, society was to be organized, they said that each village should be associated with three forests. So you should have uh, the wilderness forest, primeval, you should have the Paribhogavana, the, the, the uh, extractive forest, right, where you went for your timber or hunting or whatever, and then you have the Tapovana, the, the spiritual uh, grove where you would have the the different wandering ascetics and so on would stay, and that sounds I don't know that sounds pretty good right? If we if all of our villages and towns today had three forests attached to them, I think we world would be a much nicer uh, place. And so this is this idea that we live in this mutual connective relationship with the environment around us, and where the maintenance and care for natural places was a part of our spiritual duty. So the Buddha, when wandering, the Buddha wasn't entirely unself-interested in making this rule because when the Buddha and other monks and nuns would wander across India, they would very frequently stay at these woodland shrines. And we see that happening a number of times in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta itself. Uh, the Buddha was enlightened at one of these shrines 
uh, and stayed at them very often. So these would have been places outside the village a little bit. Uh, maybe you find a particularly impressive tree or a particularly impressive grove. And then the, the, the villagers would clear some of the ground around that, make it a nice place to visit. Uh, they would set up maybe a small shrine there, come offer some ghee, some rice. Uh, and uh, often the, the, there would be a deity who would be associated with that place who would be regarded as the protector deity for that realm. And so we see one class of deities in the suttas are deities of place. So this is the, and, and this of course is still happens in Buddhist countries today. If you go to Thailand, you see the little spirit houses outside the front of all the houses, uh, and people will still make those kinds of offerings. Ah, oh, so it's IT says in the uh, that is a genuine Aranyabodhi redwood. Nice, the view of the back deck of the Freedom Kuti. Oh, sorry, that is the fo photo backdrop. Okay, fine. Okay, so we're seeing the photo backdrop of the real thing. Okay, very good. Well. This is, this is the genuine inside of the Lokanta Vihara here that you're getting here. No photo backdrops. <laughs> All right, very good. So moving along. Uh, okay. Um, uh, and then, okay, so that the, the Vajians would organize proper protection and shelter for the perfected ones, for the Arahants, uh, so that they can come and uh, live in the realm. Uh, so again, this is, this is referring to the idea that in, um, in that ancient Indian civilization, um, like the idea of Arahants is a little bit, um, how do I say this, a bit, I mean, we associate that with Buddhism, but generally speaking, I think that it's more it's meant to be more broad here that they were um, they were providing shelter for uh, spiritual seekers, wanderers and practitioners. And so this is regarded as being part of the obligations of civil society in those days. And of course, it still is today. Here I live in Harris Park um, and Harris Park is known as Little India in Sydney. And so when I go for arms round, which I just did just before we did this talk, uh, then uh, we have the all people from different backgrounds in India, the Nepalese and Gujaratis, we have the Sikhs, we have the Muslims, everyone, and they will all give arms. And so I'll take my bowl. I severe is here. She'll also take a bowl into uh, Harris Park and go to the different restaurants and so on, and people will give some food. We came down here one day with a friend of ours who was, uh, when I was with a Benabola Carlico, and one of Akaliko's former buddies came with us, and he'd never seen arms round before. And when he saw that, he saw, you know, he came with us and he saw that all of these different people like, were giving, and, you know, it's like the Hindus would go give and the Muslim greengrocer would give, and, and he, said, he said to us, aren't they, aren't they, aren't they your competition? <laughs> why why are they helping you and we're like well we don't really we don't really think of it like that and uh so uh that that's that custom and it's one of the really lovely things about being here in harris park that i get to be a part of this uh, community um <clears throat> Uh, so, yes, so King Ajatasattu uh, 
uh, Avasakara then remarked that King Ajatasattu cannot beat the Vajjins in war unless by bribery or by sowing dissension, mitu bedha. Um, the word, the first word there by bribery is a, um, a somewhat difficult, um, a difficult word to translate, uh, upalapana, and the, the basic meaning of the word sounds like it should mean, um, uh, upa is close, lapana is to speak. So it sounds like it should be like whispering things in people's ears or sowing dissension, which is how a lot of people have translated it. But in fact, upalapana is used throughout the suttas in the sense of uh, giving someone something in order to get something that you want from them. Uh, in other words, bribery. So that's why I've changed my translation of that term. We know that um, following this time that the Vajian Republic did in fact fall and we know that uh, Magadha, the empire of King Ajatasattu, did in fact swallow them up as well as swallowing up uh, all of the other, ultimately all of the other uh, places that we read about in the early uh, suttas. Um, that doesn't mean that the Vajian model was a failure. Uh, and as I said, it lasted for hundreds of years, lasted longer than the Magadan Empire did, at least under the in that very large scale Magadan Empire. And um, it was very economically prosperous and it has set, I think, a model, one of the early models for how democracy can work in running uh, a country. The Buddha didn't openly endorse any particular political model. Uh, he worked with uh, both those aristocratic republics as well as with the uh, absolute monarchies of Kosala and Magadha. Um, but rather than endorsing a particular political model, he tried to encourage whoever was running those different models to do so in line with Dhamma and do so in line with principle, with the truth, uh, with, with uh, fairness and with justice. Uh, so uh, even, but however, even though we don't have a, an explicit endorsement, endorsement of a political model by the Buddha, the Buddha then goes on in the next part of this sutta to talk about the, uh, how to run the Sangha and rather run the monastic community. And there he's clearly using uh, similar principles that he taught to the Vajians. And not to forget that these are also similar principles that he would have learned as a Sakyan because the, the government models of the Vajians and the Sakyans were similar. So these were, this was how he was brought up in this Republican context. We can also see that what the Buddha does right away after this is he basically picks up his bags and walks north out of the Magadan uh, kingdom and to the Vajian Republic. And uh, I think that this also is a kind of a comment about where the Buddha's uh, sympathies lie. Uh, ultimately, he was to walk through the Vajian Republic and to die in the neighbouring Malin Republic. Uh, I wonder, and this is just purely uh, a speculation on my part, but if you go from Magadha to Vajji and from Vajji to Mala, if you were to keep walking for, I don't know, a few more weeks, you'd end up in the Sakyan Republic. I can't help but wonder if he was walking home 
and then didn't quite make it. Anyway, like I said, that's just my speculation. Let's have a look at um, uh, the Buddha's response to uh, how he adapted those uh, um, Bhajian rules for the Buddhist Sangha, and then I'll take some questions if anyone has any more questions. All right. <clears throat> Principles that prevent decline among mendicants. So go and undergather all the mendicants staying in the vicinity of Rajagaha together in the assembly hall. Now, in um, the, that region of Rajagaha, the capital of Magadha, uh, there are a number of different monasteries and a number of different monastic residences. So he's wanting to bring them all uh, together. Um, when they assembled, he taught the seven principles for the uh, for the sangha. Uh, sangha should meet frequently and not and have many meetings. Uh, so uh, this is referring specifically to the uh, uposita meeting, uh, the fortnightly uh, recitation of the monastic rules. They should uh, carry on their business in harmony, just like the bhajis. Um, and there are a number of different uh, examples of this and a number of uh, rules and procedures which are aimed at maintaining that harmony uh, and ensuring that uh, even though divisive issues might be talked about in the meeting of the Sangha, uh, that should be done in a spirit of goodwill and good faith and we should ensure that the issues are resolved satisfactorily uh, before the meeting is uh, finished. Uh, again, the mendicants shouldn't make new decrees or abolish existing decrees, but undertake and follow the training rules if they have been decreed, uh, and then they can expect growth and not decline. Obviously, similar to the rule for the Vajians, but there's even something more significant here, is that this is uh, in a way, launching uh, the whole narrative arc of not just the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, but of the connected narratives of the first and the second councils which follow the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. So here, the Buddha refers to the Sikapada, the training rules, which are the uh, 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 Padimoka rules for the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. Now, how this works is that when, uh, when you have a naughty monk or a naughty nun and they do something that they shouldn't, then basically somebody goes to the Buddha, complains about it, and the Buddha calls them to him and says, is this true? Did you do this? And if they say it is true, then the Buddha says, okay, you shouldn't do that. Let's make a rule saying that we shouldn't do that after that. And so these Padimoka rules sort of evolve gradually uh, because of uh, actual incidents that happen. Now, when, uh, as not infrequently happens, a new case arises that is somewhat different, the Buddha would modify that original rule, uh, sometimes expanding the scope, sometimes restricting the scope of the rule. So the Buddha was quite happy to make those changes to the rules himself. However, um, the Buddha did not allow the Sangha to make the changes to those rules. And it seems from what's happening here is that those rules would be essentially frozen at the time of the Buddha's death. 
Now, the fact that the letter of the rules is frozen doesn't mean that the vinya as a, a text and a practice was frozen. We know that the vinya pitika, that is the collection of monastic discipline, evolved and was developed over quite some time after the death of the Buddha, uh, probably two or three hundred years. And if we compare the different vinyas from different traditions, what we see is that overwhelmingly the vinya rules, the sikapada, which is what the Buddha is talking about here, are the same. But the explanations and interpretations of those rules are often different. I mean, there are some differences in the, the rules themselves between the traditions, but they tend to be fairly minor. But the differences in the explanations of those rules, the analysis of them, uh, and all the kind of the detailed applications in different cases and so on, those things tend to be uh, more different. So we can see that what the Buddhist tradition did from the earliest days was that they accepted the text of those rules, um, but then within the community that they would have to interpret them and apply them according to different conditions. And so it doesn't mean that there's a rigidity in terms of like how you practice and understand the vinya, but it does mean that they, that that practice and understanding happens within the scope of the text as it is passed down or the, the, the rules as they are passed down. So these days there's still some discussion on these kinds of things and people think, oh, should we abolish certain rules or this or that? Uh, but that's not really how the tradition works. The tradition works not by changing the rules, but by changing the interpretation and practice of the rules. Um, uh, the next one that the uh, mendicants should uh, honour and esteem the senior mendicants and think them worth listening to. Again, not necessarily worth obeying, but at least worth listening to. Not too bad as a senior monk. If you, get, if you get anyone to listen to you, you're not doing too badly. Uh, and so then they shouldn't uh, fall under the sway of a risen craving for future lives. Right? So that basically not means you're corrupted by uh, worldly desires or these kinds of things. Um, and uh, they should also take care to live in wilderness lodgings. So this is something that uh, the Buddha was... Um, uh, was very strong about. He strongly believed that the, the monks and nuns should live in forest and that they should live in seclusion. Uh, and he saw a great danger in living in the city. Somebody asked me the other day, uh, are, you, are you a forest monk? You come from a forest tradition, but you're living in the city. And I'm like... I guess I'm a temporarily suspended forest monk or I'm, I'm, a for, I'm a forest monk who got lost on my way to the city or something. I'm not sure. But I'm spending some time here in uh, Sydney and um, in the back of my mind, you know, I've been a monk for many years now. In the back of my mind, I'm always looking at those redwood trees behind IIT and feeling that sense of longing about getting back to the forest, which I'm sure I'll do at some point. Anyway, um, okay, so these are the seven principles of non-decline for the Sangha. Um, there are a number of similar uh, principles. The Buddha goes on to give a number of different sets of seven principles, which I won't go through all in detail. You can read them in the text. 
Uh, finally, the Buddha wraps up this whole uh, section uh, by giving a at Vulture's Peak a uh, Dhamma talk to the mendicants, and this this teaching is found uh, eight times uh, throughout the Mahaparinibbana Sutta itself. Uh, such is ethics, sila, such is immersion, samadhi, such is wisdom, banya. When immersion is imbued with ethics, it's very fruitful and beneficial. When wisdom is imbued with immersion, it's very fruitful and beneficial. When the mind is imbued with wisdom, it is rightly freed from the defilements, namely the defilements of sensuality, desire to be reborn, and ignorance. When the Buddha had stayed in Rajagaha as long as he pleased, he addressed Venerable Ananda, come Ananda, let's go to Ambalaktika. All right, so um, I'm going to leave off the reading uh, at that point uh, and uh, here with this uh, short discourse we can see the Buddha is summarising the essential principles of the Dhamma, Sila Samadhi Panya. Um, that exact way of framing that teaching is not found outside of the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, but the basic idea is there. And one of the fundamental uh, things that's being emphasized here is that it's not just the fact that it's sila, samadhi, panya, ethics, immersion and wisdom, but that it's these things are imbued with each other and that these things come together as a great whole. And that is when they're of great fruit and great benefit. These days, there is sometimes a tendency that people will uh, not really want to do that. And people are saying, oh, do you have to keep your precepts before you want to meditate? Right? So you can just take, you know, I can get my meditation app. I can just do a bit of meditation. And, you know, we think of meditation or people think of meditation or mindfulness as a mind hack or something like that rather than being part of a, you know, spiritual and psychological growth. And so people say, well, you know, can you can you meditate without having sila? Well, of course you can if you want to, you know, but the Buddha didn't say that is of great fruit and great benefit. doesn't mean it's not of any fruit and benefit, right? It can still be helpful, but the the um, it can be problematic. One, one reason it can be problematic is because um, it can act as a, a kind of a placebo, it can, you know, give you short-term relief for things without addressing the real problems. Uh, and by doing so, it can, it can make you ultimately, can make people lose faith in the idea of meditation because they're like, you know, they're doing all of these things that are creating stress or anxiety and without really looking at the causes for those things, they then go and do some meditation and it helps for a little while, but then they come back and they think, oh, meditation's not that good, and so you give it up. Uh, and it's not that the meditation doesn't work, it's that it's not being undertaken in that way that will lead to being very fruitful. And uh, so personally, I think that I think it's okay to, to cherry-pick bits of the Dhamma and to practice bits here and there, the Buddha never said, you know, the Buddha was never absolutist about these things. He always encouraged people to, you know, if you can only practice a little bit of Dhamma, then that's good. And if you want to do a few minutes meditation or a lot of meditation without doing other things, that's fine. It's still good to do that meditation. But let's see that as a first step. And then let's see, well, if that's useful and that's helpful for you, what else might there be in the Dhamma that's also going to be supportive for those things? So that's how I would uh, tend to tend to approach that. 
All right, very good. Um, uh, <laughs> thanks, I. Uh, I said uh, we'll come and visit us in the redwood. Okay, I will. I, I will uh, bear that in mind. Yeah. Um, I think it's more. It's a bit more civilized now than it was the last time I was there. Is that would that be correct to say that? No. <laughs> Uh, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, but when I went to stay at Aranyabodhi, that was the toughest monastery that I've ever been in. Yeah, that was hardcore. So, um, all right. So we have, I think, a little bit of time left. So Rob left it a bit open-ended when we're going to finish. I do have another event I have to get to this afternoon, so I can't stay on for too long. Um, uh, so, but please, if anyone has any questions, please feel free to unmute yourself. I think we can unmute ourselves and speak, uh, or else I'll just have a look at a couple of the questions that are in the um, uh, in the in the chat. So, uh, Dave has asked. I uh, doesn't understand what's meant here by immersion. So, immersion is my translation of the Pali word samadhi. So, samadhi, of course, you'll usually see translated as concentration. Uh, which I don't really like as a translation because it uh, suggests a kind of effortfulness. Usually, to me, concentra what concentration means is, you know, you sit at, you're sitting in your class and the teacher yells at you and says, concentrate, which means that you have to sort of make yourself uh, pay attention to something that is inherently boring. Um, nobody says to you if you're, like, playing a video game or if you're watching a great movie, no one says to you, concentrate, right, because you're naturally immersed in that experience. It draws you into that experience, and so you're not being told to concentrate on it. So the idea is that uh, an immersion, to be immersed in samadhi is to be drawn into that experience. Uh, so think about, say, you're sitting at home and you're reading a, a really good book and you're, you're immersed in that book and then, you know, your partner comes home and they open the door and you don't even hear them and they say, oh, hello, and you're startled. Oh, I didn't hear you because you're so immersed in what you're doing. And so this is where um, uh, I think this is where I sort of drew that idea of immersion for, from for samadhi. Also, because the word samadhi in Pali is very similar in application to the word jhana, uh, which we usually translate as absorption. Um, and so immersion and absorption are also kind of along a similar sort of semantic spectrum. Interestingly, uh, both of the words samadhi and the word jhana have a dual meaning. Uh, and that dual meaning in both cases has on the one hand a psychological sense of being concentrated and focused on something. Right? So to, to samadhati in that sense is to, to gather or to withdraw like a tortoise that will gather and draw its limbs inside its shell so that it's not being attacked by the uh, by a jackal who's trying to get at it. So that's a samadhi as in gathering in. But samadhi also has a dual meaning where it means to ignite a flame. And so to kindle a flame is also to samadhi. And so jhana also has those two meanings. It means both uh, absorption, focus, concentration, but also... Um, uh, the, the blazing or illumination of a flame, 
So uh, we translate, or I translate them as immersion and absorption, but we could also translate them as incandescence and illumination. Yeah? Those two meanings are both present. Anyway. Um, good. So just seeing if there are any other questions there. Doesn't look like we've got any questions. Anyone, anyone uh, want to uh, drop any more questions in the chat or online on the mic? Oh, so we have one from Victoria. Victoria, how's it going, Victoria? Yes, hello. Um, I, I'm very new to everything, so um, I hope you won't take this question amiss if it may be a sign of my ignorance. Um, I was wondering in the when with these with this kind of ceremonial greeting, it because it seemed to me it could be almost like meta phrases, the nimble and living comfortably, and um, um, does that make any sense? I I I, I've it seems like when when I've learned meta from people, it's it's, eyes go in fours. There's eyes four. for you know conditions or whatever you know safe protected well etc so okay. I, it just sort of struck me with the with this um the the in these greetings you know hoping that you're nimble and um okay. where is it healthy and well nimble strong and living comfortably it sounded very meta-esque to me so yeah. i'm curious yeah um uh, no that's that that is that's a very interesting question please never feel never feel Shy to ask questions. The, the the dumbest questions are the most interesting ones. I had not thought of that, um, um, but you may be onto something. Uh, let me see. Apabadham. So I'll just the Pali of these words. So healthy is apabada, uh, literally of few afflictions. Um, apatanka is of a similar kind of meaning. Lahutana. That's an interesting one. I've translated that as nimble probably after previous translators, but lahutana, literally it means um, standing lightly, mm. something like that, standing lightly. Interesting, right? Yeah. Uh, balang is strong. Pasuvihara, um, and it means, uh, yeah, living comfortably or living uh, at ease, living, uh, living happily. So, yeah, just a sort of polite uh, phrases. But yeah, clearly, um, you know, clearly these are some of the niceties of the time. Um, yeah. Is there any particular significance in these um, sets of four? Like this one, I believe, I believe this one's five, isn't it? Apabadang, apatankang. Um, well, I don't know in the Pali. I didn't. I can't yeah. read Pali. <laughs> healthy, healthy, and well are two separate ones. So healthy, well. Oh, they're separate. Two. Okay, okay. I took so health are, well as the same. Okay. Yeah, so um, five in this case. Okay. So I don't think there's a direct correlation with the uh, with the teachings on meta. No, but there is some. You know, it's, it's obviously a you know that kindly uh, kindly introduction. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I wonder Thank what lahutanang really means. Nimble seems good enough, but it seems a bit curious, doesn't it? Might have to go and do another afternoon's research on that one and figure out what the <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
Uh, thanks. Uh, IoT uh, has uh, popped in um, popped in a uh, uh, essay I did a little while ago. Samadhi is both a gathering and a fire. And uh, for those who are interested in these kinds of issues, then from time to time on our sort of central forum, uh, I will just write a little uh, article discussing different points in Pali and translation and interpretation, uh, and sometimes come across some interesting things there. Um, Adhiri Yupa uh, has uh, comments that in the Thai language, the word samadhi means concentrate our attention. Okay, uh, which introduces an interesting point. Like, the, so the question was raised about translating immersion, and as a translator, people often ask, well, "Why do you translate this like this, or translate that like that?" And when you sort of negotiate some of the complexities of that, they often say, "Oh, why not just leave it in the Pali?" And so you can just leave samadhi in the Pali, and there are plenty of words that you can do like that. You can leave bodhisattva in the Pali, or you can leave bhikkhu. So bhikkhu bodhi leaves bhikkhu in the Pali, uh, and uh, deva, and various other kinds of things. Uh, the problem is with that is, I mean, I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit, but you can end up with a sentence that goes something like, um, you know, the bhikkhu was sitting samadhi uh, when a deva... Uh, came to him, and then you realize that actually the entire substance of the sentence is just in Pali with some grammatical grease to stick it together. Uh, and to me, uh, it's important if you're going to translate to actually translate things. And the word samadhi is, is a good example of that because if you look at people would say, leave it in the Pali, it makes the meaning clear. But in fact, the word Pali has many different meanings, especially in the later different traditions. And so it really depends on what your background is. Uh, so in Thai language, as, as Diriyupa mentions there, it means concentrate your attention. It can also just be used in the sense to meditate, right? So if, you know, you just say, oh, I'm going to go and sit samadhi, just means I'm going to go and do some meditation. Um, uh, in India, in Hindu culture, samadhi is often used in the sense of the, similar to what we would use for parinibbana, right? the final uh, uh, immersion or uh, connection of the soul of a saint with the cosmic Brahman is called a samadhi. Uh, in the Vipassana traditions, they use samadhi to refer to what they call kanika samadhi, which is a kind of momentary, uh, moment-to-moment mindfulness, which again is a different kind of uh, sense, uh, and so on and so forth. So if we use samadhi, then somebody from Thailand and somebody from India and somebody from maybe Myanmar and somebody from uh, the United States might all read this word samadhi and actually read four different, quite different meanings from them. So this is why the idea of leaving things in the original language doesn't solve that problem of um, not of uh, 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 ambiguity or difficulty of translation. So samadhi has been one of the hardest words to translate. A number of years ago when I came back from doing all my translation work, I've been on an island, Timei, off the coast of Taiwan for three years, just translating Pali every day, and this was one of the most difficult ones to do. And when I came out of that, I went to a conference, and at the conference I met this uh, Aboriginal woman called Susan Boylan Coombs, and we were just chatting and talking about language and things like that. And, and she mentioned, oh, yeah, there are these words in, there are these words you find in Aboriginal languages that you don't have in English. 
And I, I will admit, I was kind of skeptical because I'm like, well, you can really translate anything if you put your mind to it. And she said, for example, we have a word kabrananga, uh, which means uh, a state of mind that is still and peaceful and clear. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. We don't have a word like that in English. <laughs> but there is a word in Pali uh, for that. And so this is a one case where it would have been really easy to, if I was translating it into an Aboriginal dialect, uh, but not into English. Incidentally, uh, I started this talk talking about the uh, Uluru statement from the heart and the Uluru voice. One of the events to I went for this, uh, I was talking with a uh, Torres Strait Islander woman who's running a uh, orphanage for uh, girls. So these are basically Aboriginal girls who are, uh, you know, come from a background of broken homes or domestic violence or something, and they come to a um, uh, come to an orphanage and they're being looked after and educated. When she said she said when they started this that they uh, it was really difficult and they had all of these behavioural problems. All the kids were acting out. You know, they'd never really had good role models. They'd never learned to live together. They just never and they'd never learned any kind of emotional regulation or anything like that. And uh, she said they were really kind of despairing for quite a, quite a while. And now after a while they heard about this uh, traditional um, uh, 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 Aboriginal practice of kabarananga uh, or didiri is another word that they use for a similar practice, which is basically a kind of meditation or mindfulness practice. So they introduced the didiri practice with the girls. And she said that originally they kind of resisted and it was really hard but they persevered, and after six months or a year, they really started loving it, and they learned how to emotionally regulate, not to act out. And she said that now all of those behavioural problems have gone away. They just don't have them anymore, and the girls are all work together and live together fine through that practice of didiri. So to me, that was a really beautiful uh, example of that practical application of meditation. Okay. Um, um, okay, we should probably wrap up about there. I think it's been about 90 minutes. I want to thank everybody for your attention and I want to encourage you all to uh, reflect about the Saripatana Sutta, uh, sorry, about the Mahaparinibbana Sutta as we go forward. Uh, there is such a lot of richness in this text. As I mentioned briefly at the beginning, I won't be reading all of it. So next week, I'm not going to be necessarily picking up from the point I left off. So I do encourage you to read the sutta uh, um, for next week if you haven't already. And uh, please, uh, if you've got any questions that come up in your reading uh, or during the talks, please do let me know. And uh, um, to me... One of the one of the things that is becomes most apparent is that this sort of really is a journey, and it leads us from one place to another, you know. And we've started in one place with this with this declaration of war and with these principles of organizing communities and all of these things, but the sutta then moves and moves into deeper and deeper waters, sometimes into literal waters, and so. As we go through for the next few weeks, 
we're going to be going on that journey towards the deeper and deeper reaches of the Dhamma. And I hope that you'll uh, stay with me for that journey. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks to Rob and the Sati Centre for putting this on. And I look forward to seeing you all again next, next week. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.